Our guest today is Jesse Levinson. Jesse is co-founder and CTO of Zooks, the self-driving car company that is creating ground-up, fully autonomous electric vehicles for point-to-point mobility in cities, and which was acquired by Amazon in 2020. Zooks is now a independently operated Amazon subsidiary. Prior to Zooks, Jesse graduated summa cum laude from Princeton and then completed a computer science PhD and postdoc under Sebastian Thrun at Stanford. There, he developed algorithms for Stanford's $1 million winning entry in the 2007 DARPA Urban Challenge and went on to lead the self-driving car team's research efforts. Jesse, so great to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. Hey, Peter. Thanks so much for having me on. It's good to see you again. Been a while. Been a while, yeah. Really good to see you. Now, Jesse, before diving into today's conversation, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Index Ventures and Weights and Biases. Index Ventures is a venture capital firm that invests in exceptional entrepreneurs across all stages from seed to IPO. With offices in San Francisco, New York, and London, the firm backs founders across a variety of verticals, including AI, SaaS, fintech, security, gaming, and consumer. On a personal note, Index is an investor in Covariant, and I couldn't recommend them any higher. Weights and Biases is an ML ops platform that helps you train better models faster with experiment tracking, model and dataset versioning, and model management. They're used by OpenAI, NVIDIA, and almost every lab releasing a large model. In fact, many, if not all, of my students at Berkeley and colleagues at Covariant are big users of Weights and Biases. Jesse, so good to have you here. Well, let's start all the way at the top. What you're currently doing, you're building Zooks. What's Zooks' mission? So our mission actually hasn't changed since 2014, which is kind of nice. Uh, And that is to build a ground-up autonomous vehicle that we can move people in and then deploy them as a fleet of robo-taxis in major urban cities so that we can really help people move around these cities in a safer, cleaner a more reliable and certainly more enjoyable way. Uh, and then over time to actually bring down the cost of personal mobility so that you know people have more access to safe, clean, enjoyable transportation. Uh, and in the longer, longer term, actually sort of start to take a dent in the amount of private car ownership in the US and, and hopefully other parts of the world. Now, it's very interesting where you say they're moving people around in cities. When I look at many of the self-driving car efforts, they often focus on, let's say, highway driving first, because in many ways, it's a simplified problem compared to city driving. But you're starting right with city driving. Why is that? So I think uh, it's a bit of a misconception that freeway driving is easier. It is in some ways, because it's it's much more constrained, right? There's not as many things going on. You're sort of, you know, generally speaking, you're in a lane and other people are in their lanes. So it's it's a lot less complicated from that perspective. Uh, I do think that it's easier to make a pretty compelling demo on the freeway. That is definitely easier. But to actually remove the driver and to do that safely, I don't personally believe that that's easier to do on the freeway than in cities. And there's a few reasons for that. One is that, you know, your, your perception range requirements kind of grow quadratically with your speed. Uh, that's because, you know, breaking distances and sort of basic, you know, physics. And so that makes it really difficult for perception. And, and then, you know, it's not just not missing something. It's also not having false positives. So you have to be able to detect debris on the highway very far away. But you also can't be spooked by hallucinating that there's debris when there isn't too often. That's pretty challenging. But that's not the worst of it. I think that's actually in companies with modern sensing and AI techniques can probably do okay in that department. Where I think it gets really dicey is both the safety case, right? So what happens when something does go wrong? Because you're dealing with large vehicles at very, very high speeds uh, and just so much mass and momentum, uh, the implications of something going wrong on the freeway tend to be a lot worse. And so it's a very dangerous situation if something does go wrong on the freeway. And then perhaps the problem that I think because the first two things, people get that if they've, if they've been thinking about it or if they're in the field, they generally are aware of those two issues. 
There, there's a third issue, which I actually don't know that most people think too much about, but I think maybe the public's starting to realize it a little bit more, which is that when you build a robot, including a self-driving car, one of the things a robot has to do is constantly make sure that it's in a happy state. Right? Things are running nominally. There's not too much latency. We're not having data outages, right? And if you find that something isn't nominal to keep your robot safe, well, the easiest thing to do is just to bring the robot to a stop. And it turns out that in a city, you can do that. And it's not usually the end of the world. Now, you don't want to get stuck very often in a city. In fact, we see, you know, some of the companies that are out there now in San Francisco, which, by the way, is really cool to see, they are getting stuck more than, you know, they or the public would like them to. And that's causing some issues. But it's still, you know, vaguely tolerable, right? Imagine, though, your self-driving truck or car getting stuck on the freeway. That's not really okay. I mean, it can't happen very often. It has to happen way, way, way less often than it's allowable in a city. So I think to get a self-driving car or truck on the freeway and have the stability, not, you know, forget about safety for a second. That's, that's its own problem. But to get the stability to a level where you're basically guaranteed that you are essentially never getting stuck, that's a really, really hard robotics problem, you know, hardware, software integration. So I, again, all these things are solvable eventually, but in our view, Trucking is not an easier problem to actually get deployed. Also, the economic value and the societal value, in our view, for moving people around cities is about, you know, the highest it could be. So that's why we're focused on that. But having said that, it's great that companies are working on autonomous trucking. There are a lot of benefits that can come with that, too. I just think it's harder than than folks realize. That definitely resonates. And, you know, it would definitely scare me to see a completely driverless truck on the highway next to me. And maybe it shouldn't, but it definitely would because, I mean, as you said, the amount of energy when that's barreling forward is just, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's scary. And by the way, I think there's actually starting to be some proof points here, right? We are starting to see self-driving vehicles with no driver in cities now. Obviously, they haven't taken over cities all across the, the world yet by any means. It's still very early days, but you are starting to see that, right? I mean, you've seen Zooks now put one of our robo taxis on open public roads. You've seen a couple other companies doing that even in, you know, cities like San Francisco, which again is very cool. You are not seeing driverless trucks on open roads really yet, right? And so even though a lot of people predicted that the trucks would happen first, that's just not the way it's played out. And I don't think that that's going to change anytime particularly soon. You mentioned indeed there are some driverless cars already on the roads, you know, limited ways, including souks. If somebody wanted, if I wanted to go see the Zoops car, where should I go to maximize my chances to run across a Zoops car that's driving autonomously? So we haven't been doing a ton of testing yet on open public roads. What we have been doing so far is we've been testing our robo taxi on weekends uh, near our headquarters in Foster City. So we have two main buildings in Foster City. They're about a mile apart. Uh, and so we have a route where these vehicles go back and forth. Uh, and the idea is to actually make an employee shuttle service out of it. When we started testing in February, we sort of pre-announced that we'd have this full-time employee shuttle service running by the end of the spring. Now, you might notice there aren't a lot of days in spring left, um, but we're still on track to do that, which we're very proud of. So I don't know that we're going to encourage lots of people to come come visit us for that reason, but <laughs> you will find that we are testing our robo-taxi every day, during business hours as an employee shuttle starting very, very soon. And we're very excited for that. That's really exciting. Congratulations, Jesse. That, that's going to be a very big milestone to see that happen. Now, when I think of employee shuttles, I usually think of bigger buses. But of course, Azusi was designed more for individual transportation, as I understand it. Can you say a little bit, of, for, for people who haven't seen the vehicle yet on pictures, can you describe what should they imagine it looks like? It's essentially a pod. And so the idea is it's a, it's a symmetrical kind of a, some people think it looks like a toaster. We think it's a very pretty toaster, if so. But it's a pod, and the idea is it's symmetrical. We have carriage seating on the interior, which we really like. So you have two seats facing two seats. It's a very uh, social experience for the times where you want it to be, instead of having, you know, seat right in front of you when you're sitting in the back seat like we have in cars today. And so it's a really wonderful way to spend time. It's also very compact. It's about a meter shorter than a Toyota Corolla, which is not a particularly big car. So it, it's really optimized, again, for driving in dense urban environments. It has four-wheel steering, so it has a very tight 8.6-meter turning radius. Uh, so what this means is we've really designed it to be, again, optimized for riders and the experience there. 
but also for AI and maneuverability in cities. So we're able to put a sensor pod on the top of each corner, right? So we have these four sensor pods. Each pod has a 270 degree field of view. And so you get this wonderful overlapping 270 degree field of view in each corner, which not only lets us see around objects, but also gives us wonderful redundancy. So if we were to uh, lose data from a center for any reason, we would still be able to complete our mission. And one of our goals with the Zooks robot is to make sure that under almost any circumstance, not only will we be safe, that's a minimum bar, of course, but actually hold ourselves to a higher standard, which is we'd like to actually complete our mission. We'd like to be able to take our customer to their destination and then drive the vehicle back to base, even if a particular component on the vehicle were to fail. Now, obviously, if enough components were to fail, we wouldn't be able to stay operational. Um, but you can build statistical models and say, you know, what is the probability that this component or that component were to fail? And by building a ground up vehicle from scratch, we've been able to build in a much higher degree of redundancy and, and therefore sort of, you know, operational uptime than anybody who's working with the traditional car platform as their base. The thing that really struck me from the beginning when you started Souks is this notion that there, the way the pod is designed, there isn't even a driver's seat. It's just for passengers. And I can see in the long run why that would be the best design. But I'm just curious, while you are developing the technology in these past several years, how do you, in some sense, have a, I guess, a, a safety driver or a safety mechanism while the car is testing? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. So as you may know, and people who live in San Francisco or Las Vegas have probably noticed, we do have a large fleet of so-called L3 test vehicles. So L3 is referring to the levels of autonomy where in L3 you have the car, it's driving itself, but there is a human who can take over if necessary. So we have a wonderful, very large group of trained safety drivers. And the idea with our L3 vehicles, in our case, we use Toyota Highlanders. We've been able to mount our sensors on the Toyota Highlanders in almost exactly the same relative locations as they are on our robo-taxi. And we have the same computer in there. We're running the same software. And there are very few differences. There are some differences. For example, our robo-taxi has four-wheel steering. Of course, Toyota Highlanders do not. So there are some small differences, but by and large, we can test almost all of our autonomy stack on these vehicles on public roads and make sure that we can drive well in you know whatever situation we might find ourselves in. Then what about the differences between those vehicles and our robotaxi? Because there are some. So we have two ways of accounting for that. So one of them is we can test a robotaxi extensively on test tracks. And we do that. So we drive, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles with our robotaxi on test tracks. And we make sure that, you know, we can not only drive well and, and stably, but also that we can really precisely characterize exactly how these vehicles behaves. We can tune our controllers for them. By the way, we get much, much, much more precise control on these vehicles than you can get in a regular car. That might be fun to talk about in a moment. And then the third way, and this is really critical as well, of course, is simulation, right? So we can we can simulate what our robotaxi would do in just about any situation, including modeling any small differences between how our L3 vehicles behave and how our robotaxi behaves. And, and a really important insight here is that our robotaxi is pretty much strictly better than the L3 vehicles. Right. And that's really important for validation purposes, because because if if our L3 vehicles can handle a situation, we'd be just about guaranteed that our robotaxi can handle it better because it's it's more controllable. It's actually more compact. It doesn't have a hood sticking out. So it's just a much better vehicle to drive autonomously. So that's how we sort of think about that. We made a decision early on not to test our robotaxi with a steering wheel on public roads. By the way, we do have a plug-in steering wheel and pedals that we can use on test tracks. So that's really helpful if we're kind of bringing up a vehicle or if we want to test something with manual driving. We can do that on our test tracks, but we did make a decision not to put the vehicle with a manual driving interface, as we call it, on a public road. And that means that we have to do that hard work to validate that it's safe enough before we put it on a public road. And it's been an interesting journey. I'll tell you this, you know, over the years, even internally, we've had some people in, you know, in the company say, Hey, you know, how do we, how do we know that this thing is safe if we can't test it with a safety driver on the public road? And it's a, it's a good question, right? But again, if we look at those, those three mechanisms, the L3 driving on public roads, the robotaxi driving on test tracks and then simulation, what we've realized is that we can account for everything and there aren't actually any gaps. So it's been heartening to see now that we have started testing our robotaxi 
on public roads, lo and behold, we have not found a single surprise where, you know, there's some discrepancy and we had somehow, you know, forgotten to model it or we hadn't realized that, that could happen. So far, we have been able to validate that premise. And what that means then is we basically skipped all the pain of trying to turn a car into a robo-taxi. We can certainly understand why some other companies have chosen to do that, but we've kind of realized early on, it's really not a great customer experience. And it's not really, you know, economically scalable to take these cars and try to make them into commercial robo-taxis. And so we kind of skipped that step. It's a little bit harder and, and it requires more time and, and more money to do it that way. And it does mean that, you know, we're not going to be able to say, hey, we're first in San Francisco because we, we aren't. There are, you know, two companies testing in San Francisco right now and offering very limited rides without a driver, which again, we're, we're you know, really proud to see that for the industry. We knew that this approach would take a little bit longer, but we also believe that it's just a better product, that it's going to be more scalable. People are going to prefer to use that. And in the long run, we hope that that's going to, to, to make a difference. Jesse, I will say the first time I heard about you, Zooks, the whole idea that you would design a new car, a pod, very different concept than a regular car, and develop self-driving, I thought it was crazy because... Self-driving is so hard in itself. Designing cars is so hard in itself. And you essentially doubled, more than doubled, I might argue, the challenge you put yourself in front of. But it also sounds like, I mean, first of all, somehow you're right on the heels of people who didn't have to design the car. You're right there. And second, it sounds like there are benefits from designing beyond the product, meaning beyond the, the passenger experience that you have better sensor placement options. You have design choices, like you're saying, four-wheel steering. Do you think in the end it's actually turning out maybe a slightly easier problem? Because I'm not trying to say it's easy. It's, it's a hard problem. But might it be easier in the end to do it your way rather than retrofitting existing cars with self-driving? We actually think so. And we've said that all along. And, you know, many people thought that was nuts. And, you know, understandably so, because it's a strange thing to do. And to your point, it's a... It seems like a lot more work. I mean, undoubtedly, building an entire new type of vehicle from scratch is not an easy thing to do. Incidentally, and this does surprise me because, you know, here we are about halfway through 2023, we're still, as far as we know, the only company in the world that has designed a genuinely ground-up vehicle architecture to be a robo-taxi. We have seen a couple of companies you know, show either concept cars or in Cruz's case, to their credit, the origin certainly looks like a grounded vehicle. I would call it a semi-grounded vehicle. It shares the, the vehicle platform with some other GM products. And so it doesn't have a lot of the features that you'd want to put in a robo-taxi if you truly had a blank sheet of paper. So, you know, it's like almost symmetrical, but not quite. So it doesn't, you know, it's not bidirectional. You know, it doesn't have active suspension on each corner, which is definitely something you'd like to have in a robo-taxi. So as far as I know, maybe somebody's working on this, you know, in secret. But as far as being able to tell, nobody else has a, you know, full-fledged vehicle development program for a a platform that truly was conceived to just be a robo-taxi and not to be reused in other ways. To be fair, there are benefits in reusing platforms, you know, economies of scale and so on. So, you know, our robo-taxi does cost a little bit more than it would if we were sharing tons and tons of components with other cars. But we do think it makes the problem easier to solve. Now, I think we should clarify what does easier to solve mean? Because clearly, you know, getting a demo out there or getting an early product out there, this is not the fastest way to do that. But when we think about the safety case and when we think about scaling these things and having them not get stuck and, you know, what is the customer experience? When we think about all those things together, we really fundamentally do believe that, that we've actually made the problem easier for ourselves. And one of my favorite examples is, and you'll appreciate this uh, as a bit of a controls guy. I know you do more than that, but you've done some controls, right? So you can write the world's best control algorithms, but you know, you're always going to be somewhat limited by your actuators and you know your measurement abilities and, and so on. And so what we've found is that on a regular car platform, it's definitely possible to get your cross-track error. And let's explain that for, you know, people who might not know what that is. When you're trying to drive a trajectory, you have some sort of, you know, goal in mind, like we'd like to drive this particular path. And then you have to kind of, you know, use your, your brakes and your accelerating and accelerator and your, and your wheel steering to try to follow that trajectory as closely as possible. But of course, you never, exactly follow it down to the micron, right? There's always going to be a little bit of noise in, in your system. And so one interesting question is how closely does your robot follow the trajectory that you wanted it to drive? And one way to measure that is your cross-tracker, which is simply, you know, how far are you laterally away from the place you want it to be? 
Uh, and it's never going to be, you know, mathematically zero. It's always going to be something. Hopefully it's a small enough number that, you know, who really cares? We can just, you know, kind of treat it like it's nothing. It turns out that on a regular car, we found that you can you can get that cross-check error, you know, particularly if you're going around, you know, let's say turns or something, in the order of 10 centimeters, which is about four inches. So on the one hand, that's pretty good. You know, it's probably, you know, better than most people in terms of, you know, controlling a vehicle accurately. And maybe you can get a little better than that. But then you start realizing, okay, well, you know, what if, what if in some situations I'm actually off by two or three standard deviations? What if, you know, that might be my kind of, you know, typical error, but what if I'm seeing worse error than that in, for, you know, in some situation? And then you start saying, well, you know, if I were 20 or 30 centimeters away from my trajectory, desired trajectory, which, you know, doesn't happen very often, but that starts to be enough that, you know, in a dense city like San Francisco, maybe you don't actually have enough buffer, you see? And so, you know, when you build a safety case, you kind of need to stack up all of your errors on top of each other, right? I mean, you know, you have controller error and you have perception error and there's just you know, a bunch of things that, that aren't perfect and you have to make sure you have enough buffer. So if you're driving in a place that, you know, generally people keep tons of distance, you might not care about that amount of control error. But if you're driving in a city like San Francisco, especially if you want to go on some of the really narrow roads, these things actually start to matter. Well, it turns out that we've we've been able to design our robotaxi with two steering racks and the four-wheel steering. Now, if you do some basic control theory, one of the things you'll notice pretty quickly is with two steering racks, you can cut your both your cross-track error and your yaw error, error which is basically you know, the way you're pointing, by, you can cut them down by a factor of two, which is a lot, right? That's a, that's a really big win. But we didn't stop there. We said, you know, again, this is a robotaxi, it's not a car. So let's work with the supplier that provides our steering racks and let's customize that controller. So, you know, you basically have a rack and, you know, can, can go left or right to control the, the wheel angle. And we were able to work with them and get a much, much more precise controller on the rack itself so that when we tune our controller, we can, you know, take advantage of smaller adjustments that you would normally get on a self-driving car. And if you combine the benefits from having two of these things instead of one and having them be more controllable, and then you tune a controller to take advantage of both of those benefits, we've been able to get our cross-track error on our robotaxis, even when we're going around turns, down to one centimeter is our RMS cross-track error, a centimeter. So that's pretty crazy, right? Like we can control our robotaxi so precisely that on average, it's within a centimeter of where we want it to be. You just can't do that on any car. It doesn't matter how good it controls you are. It's just the, the platform itself is just not that precise. So that's one of many examples. It's, it's one of my favorites because it's something that people probably don't think of it, you know, right away. I mean, uh, control theory is a super interesting field, but it's generally not considered to be a bottleneck in self-driving cars these days, right? I mean, we kind of consider that, hey, it's a solved problem. But, you know, if you can get it down to a centimeter, it makes everything better. And so that's one of the reasons among many why we really like having a platform that was designed to be a robotaxi and nobody else in the world has it as far as we know. That's amazing. Now, this makes me wonder, did you also do something that might shorten your braking distance. We have very impressive brakes on our RoboTaxi. I will say, on the other hand, it's, it's a little bit heavy, right? It's, there's a lot of stuff in there. It has a big battery. So we have really good braking distances, but it's not like, you know, absolutely, absolutely like way better than any car. Having said that, we also, you know, we're, we're a very cautious driver and we're not going to be doing things like, you know, speeding. So some of, some of the reasons why cars have oversized brakes is, you know, what if the driver is driving recklessly or going too fast? We aren't going to be doing that in the first place. So we have a great braking system, but it's not like super, super, super overspecified. But you're electric, so already the regenerative braking is going to be very powerful. Oh, yeah. Um, so you're already braking much easier than, than most cars. That is true. The one thing I'm also wondering related to all of this is you've designed the car, but then if I think, for example, of, of the Tesla story, right, of, you know, the headlines, was it four, five years ago? It was all about manufacturing hell, mm -hmm. Elon Musk sleeping on the floor in a factory to get the point across that this really needs to get done. Yeah. Are you already at the stage with Zooks where you are running a manufacturing operation? And where are you running it or where do you plan to run it? We are, but I want to I want to contextualize that for your listeners. Uh, I don't want people imagining that we have some gigafactory somewhere and we're, you know, cranking out millions of these things. That'd be great someday, but we're we're very far from that. So, we have a facility in Fremont, California, 
where we do manufacture these robots. But when we talk about manufacturing, we kind of prefer to use a different term, which is final assembly. And the difference here is when you're a car company, and this is a really important point, when you're a car company, you sell cars, right? And you sell them for, you know, 30,000, 50,000, $70,000, depends on the car. And you sell them to a person who buys the car. And on average, that person uses the car 4% of the time which is about an hour a day. And, you know, the other 96% of the time it's taking up space and depreciating, which, you know, cosmically is very inefficient and kind of sad, but that's what the car industry is. Because of that model, you don't have very good margins, right? You make a car, you really, really want to make it as you know inexpensively as possible. And then you sell it and you hope, you know, make a few thousand bucks selling this car. And the way that that works economic well first of all it doesn't work for most car companies <laughs> many car companies have, have failed to, to 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 pull that off tesla to their immense credit has you know pulled that pulled it off but barely right i mean they had they had their moments where it's like is this is this going to really work and you know everybody even elon will certainly attest to that but you know incredibly they they pulled it off which is amazing to see but it's a really tough business model because you have to basically pour hundreds of millions of dollars if not billions of dollars into tooling and these factories, you know, you have body shops and paint shops and all these things. And you're just spending so much on these upfront costs, but you'd amortize that over building tons and tons of cars. And then you try to sell them, you try to make a few thousand bucks on each car. And it's obviously possible because companies like Tesla have pulled it off. It's very, very hard and only works if you're selling tons and tons and tons of cars. Now at Zooks, we aren't selling cars. We're building robo taxis and we're owning and operating them as a fleet, which we think makes a lot more sense environmentally and economically because you get to take, you know, one of these expensive resources and you get to sell rides all day and all night long, which is really, really nice. What this means is we are not in a situation where, you know, every penny is quite as important to us as it is for a car company. Now, that's not to say we don't really care what these things cost. Of course we do. We're business. We want to be profitable. But since we're amortizing those costs over people paying for it, let's say, you know, 16 hours a day instead of one hour a day, uh, we can be a bit more flexible. Also, we're, you know, we're kind of humble here. I mean, we, we, I guess we're, you know, audacious enough to go build a whole robo taxi from scratch, but we also know A, it's a really hard problem. And B, you know, we probably didn't a hundred percent nail it on our first try. We're very proud of what we've built. We think we've, you know, kind of gotten closer to what an ideal robotaxi is than, than anybody so far. But even that doesn't mean that we totally nailed everything. And so the idea that we'd go spend hundreds of millions or, you know, billions upon billions of dollars on tooling to get ready to go build 500,000 of these things or a million of these things, that just feels premature to us, right? We'd much rather build thousands and then tens of thousands of them which is still, you know, a really interesting amount of robo taxis for, you know, many large cities. And then once we've kind of, you know, made sure that this is this is the right thing, we already know some improvements we'd like to make to a next generation version of it. Then, you know, let's think about how do we make hundreds of thousands of them and maybe even someday millions. So we've taken a little bit more of an incremental approach to, you know, deployment and scaling. And that means that we've been able to be relatively capital efficient, relatively lean and nimble. And we think that works for us. Now, if another company already knows how to build a million robo taxis and it's that perfect, uh, even though they haven't put any of them on the road, that's amazing. Like, you know, hats off to them. But I just don't have, you know, we don't have the confidence that we are 100% perfect yet. Switching gears for a moment, Jesse, as you alluded to earlier, a big part of the challenge is the artificial intelligence for these robo-taxis. And we've seen a lot of advances in AI in the last 10 years, and even more so pretty much every year, things go faster and faster and faster. And so I'm curious on your end, it must have started one way at Zooks, the way you thought about to do the AI, but it must have evolved over time. And where is it at today? How do you think this problem should be solved for an AI that actually understands everything well enough, or, or should there still be human intervention? What do you think? Great question. I'm going to split that into two, right? Let's talk about the AI stack, and then we can talk a little bit about how we use humans in the loop and why that's important. So on the AI stack, the, you know, the overall very high-level architecture is not completely different from what we were thinking you know, five years ago, or even what people were doing 10 or 15 years ago in robotics. Now, you might say, wait a second, you know, with all these LLMs recently and people are starting to build, you know, embodied versions of them, like Google published the Palm e-paper, super cool. So you're like, well, you know, maybe we should just throw out all the, you know, the last couple of decades of robotics and just, you know, build some giant LLM and give it sensor data and we'll figure out how to drive. Now, 
I actually do think that will happen at some point, but I think we're, we're not super close to that. And the reason is not that those models wouldn't be very, very smart and, and generally do great. I think they would. The issue is that, you know, we're talking about a safety critical real time system here. See, so, you know, you can play with GPT four and you're like, wow, that's amazing. And, and it is amazing. Like I genuinely think it's smart, you know, in a true semantically like, meaningful version of the word smart, I would consider GPT four to be smart. He has plenty of limitations, but I think it's smart. You know, could you build something like that and give it car sensor data and, you know, teach it how to drive and it would it generally know what to do and in some cases blow your mind with amazing handling of hard, hard situations? 100%. And, and people are going to start, you know, doing that and it's going to be really cool. My concern is that, you know, you, you play with GPT and GPT-4 is much better than GPT-3.5, including it not hallucinating, but it's not hard to get GPT-4 to make things up or to trip it up, right? And so... When you have a self-driving car operating in a city, you really don't want to have a model that, you know, 97% of the time is amazing and knows exactly what to do. And then 3% of the time just does something like terribly dumb. That, that's not okay in a safety critical system. So I think we're still in that sort of journey with these, you know, foundational models or even embodied versions of them where they do incredible things and it's mind blowing. And sometimes you're like, wow, you know, this thing that we spent years and years on with dozens of engineers, like this thing is, it, it can just kind of do it better. And it, it, we don't even really know why. Like, that's definitely a thing, but I don't think we're super close to like, okay, let's throw out all the old robotic stuff and just put some big LLM and out it drives the car. Maybe, maybe in five or 10 or 15 or 20 years, like that, that may actually happen, but we don't see that happening particularly soon. We could be wrong, by the way. I mean, things are moving very quickly now. Having said that, right? Like, we definitely, are drawing inspiration from some of the techniques that are used in LLMs and we're seeing where in our stack can we make make it smarter because of some of these techniques. And so for example, you know, when it comes to perception and sensor fusion, one of the things that we did in the earlier days, which is I think how many people started is, okay, you build your vision pipeline, you build your LiDAR pipeline, you build your radar pipeline, then you have a sensor fusion where you take the output of those and then you decide what's really going on in the world and you sort of take you know, the best of all the sensors and combine in some principled probabilistic way. That works pretty well, but you know, it turns out with some of these more modern techniques where you can just kind of feed it like, here's, you know, here's all the data, what's really going on in the world. It's getting really, really good at that. So we're doing, you know, a lot and sort of, you know, so-called early fusion and saying, you know, can we start to rely less and less on you know, individual models and then putting them together and more on just, you know, these big, big, big models that can train on multimodal data and including things like, well, you know, what if we're missing some data? Turns out they're actually pretty good at that too, right? You can train them with missing data and they can, they can still work. So we're really excited about that for perception. And then on the planning and prediction side, we're also really excited about using, I don't know if there, you know, I don't think we need trillion parameter models to, to drive. In some ways, driving is a much more constrained task than just you know, solving intelligence in general. But for example, you know, instead of coming up with trajectories in a more classical motion planning way, can you use, you know, large models trained on lots of data to suggest trajectories without having to, you know, tell it how to generate a trajectory? And it turns out the answer is, yeah, we can do that. And we're starting to do that. And it's pretty amazing because, you know, we're getting some really wonderful trajectories you know, without having to do a lot of manual work a lot of the time now. What we decided to do is actually kind of a hybrid solution, which we think is clever, right? So we have essentially the traditional motion planning techniques that generate candidate trajectories, and we have a way of scoring them. We also have a machine learning system that's suggesting trajectories. And the really cool thing is we can just pick the best one, right? So sometimes it's the machine learned trajectory. Sometimes it's a more classically generated trajectory doesn't really matter which one it is as long as we can pick the best one and have a good way of scoring it. So these are some of the ways that we are using some of these these newer techniques. I will say we're specifically not worrying about full end-to-end -end models where you basically give the model sensor data and then the output is, you know, steering angle, throttle, and brake. Not because those things will never work, but a, I think we're still a ways away from them working incredibly reliably and safely in real time. But B, you know, one of the really important things in self-driving is how do you validate the behavior of these systems, right? And also, how do you adjust the behavior if you want to like, oh, I want it to be a little bit more conservative or this or that. One of the problems with these giant end-to-end -end systems is, you know, they're sort of only as good as your training data. And if you want them to do something different than your training data, get very complicated. Also simulation, and I know I'm going on, but hopefully this is interesting to some people who think about these things. We can simulate quote unquote everything. We can simulate raw sensor data. So you could you could you could do end-to-end -end learning, you know, 
pipe that through an end-to-end simulator. It's very computationally expensive though, right? It's really nice to be able to have layers of simulation where you can say, okay, you know, I'm going to simulate the output of perception. I'm going to feed that into planning rather than have to simulate every single you know, photon and every single piece of sensor data. And if you have a true end-to-end model that, that really goes from raw sensor data all the way to driving, it's very hard to efficiently run that through simulation and do training and validation in that context. So for all those reasons, we're basically, you know, kind of taking a hybrid approach. And who knows, you know, maybe in five or 10 years, we'll be like, well, you know, we, we are too slow to throw out all the old stuff and go full, full, full on into LLMs. But I think it makes sense to kind of be in this hybrid state for now. And of course, we're very much paying attention to all the exciting developments. And, you know, every month there's something new. You've emphasized many times, naturally so, the need for safety, reliability, and that, you know, 99% is not even close to good enough, obviously. How do you chase that extra nine of reliability every time? What's the process to keep improving? So we have a, a bunch of ways of doing that. One is we, we do collect a lot of data from those L3 vehicles, right? So I mean, nearly millions and millions of miles. And that allows us to see a whole bunch of really strange things. But that's not even enough because, you know, humans in America drive about 100 million miles uh, per fatality. So we can't necessarily say, well, just because we've driven X millions of miles in real life or in simulation, that's good enough. But what we can do is we can take situations we've seen and then we can fuzz them. We can generate variations of them. And on top of that, we can procedurally generate entire new scenarios that we've never seen in real life, but could exist in theory. That's particularly useful for creating scenarios that are really dangerous. We hope we never see in real life, but we want to be prepared if we do. And then we can basically build a framework for generating really hard scenarios for engineers to contemplate. We also don't want engineers to have to go, well, you know, go change all of our software so we can fix this one corner case or that one corner case, because that's, that's not very efficient. And also you run the risk of fixing one corner case and then making other things worse. So what's really important in this space, and I think the companies that are doing well in the space have all figured this out, is you really need these frameworks or this machinery for doing large-scale testing. So if you're a developer and you have an idea, hey, I want to change this parameter, or I want to try this new algorithm or this new model, you know, how can we quickly run that on tons and tons of scenarios and get a kind of a summary report of what got better, what got worse, and then be very methodical and statistically rigorous about only accepting changes that make our overall driving better. And so you can kind of be on this relentless path to kind of slowly improving your software. And, you know, one of the great things about, of course, you know, AI and robotics and applied to this field is that, you know, we're just getting better. Like every couple of weeks, our software gets better. And, you know, humans are not getting better driving. In fact, we've gotten a little bit worse with smartphones and texting. So we're, we're actually seeing worse numbers in terms of fatalities and miles per fatality over the last decade in the U.S. So humans are getting slightly worse. Uh, meanwhile, we can get our, you know, AI self-driving better and better. And, you know, as that crosses over and we start seeing the AI self-driving uh, approach be significantly safer than humans in a variety of, of ODDs, we'll see that get deployed you know, more and more, which is which is going to end up saving a lot of lives. Yeah, I mean, that's de- that's definitely the, the goal, right? Saving lives and convenience. Now, you alluded to it earlier, but we didn't have a chance to dive in. Is there a role or is there no role for human intervention or the robo-taxi fleet from Zooks? I think it depends on how you define intervention, right? So if intervention means you have to have a human constantly watching every single robot in case something weird happens, that doesn't seem scalable to us, right? Because the whole idea here, you know, is let's build a system that's that's better at driving than than humans and also that is more, you know, economically efficient than needing a human to drive every single person around. There's a reason why most people don't take Uber and Lyft as their primary means of transportation. Some people do, and there's a lot of benefits of doing that, but it's also expensive because you have to pay a whole person to drive you around. Well, paying a whole person to watch you as you're driving is also pretty expensive and extravagant. So that's not really economically sustainable in our view. So what our approach is now in the very early days, we've definitely done some one-to-one teleop monitoring where you actually do have a human paying attention to the vehicle all the time. But again, when we think about deploying commercially and scaling, it's really important that these robots are smart enough to know when they need help. Now, we don't think it's feasible to expect them to never need help because 
to expect the robot to never need help. It basically does need to have you know, some really deep form of general intelligence and be able to handle any possible situation, not just safely, but even semantically. We think we're still a ways away from that. Now, you know, who knows, maybe with some of these, you know, LLM techniques, maybe in X number of years, you know, these, these robot vehicles will, will be at least as smart as humans at understanding super weird situations and navigating them, but we're not there yet. And so our approach has always been to allow the robot to ask for help when it finds a situation that it doesn't necessarily understand. The important thing here is that it still needs to make sure it doesn't run into anything because you know if you're in an emergency situation, it's too slow to go ask a human for help and then try to have them help you avoid running into something. So the robot always needs to be smart enough to not hit things. But you could imagine some really complicated extended construction zones where you have to like you know go the, what seems like the wrong way down the road, and maybe the AI is not confident enough to go do that all by itself. Maybe you want a human that says, you know what, like I'm looking at the scene semantically, and this is a reasonable thing to do. So from the very beginning, we built in this kind of teleguidance capability where there's a few different modalities uh, and mechanisms by which a human can help the vehicle get through difficult situations when the vehicle asks for help. And our view is that's going to be part of our system for a very, very long time. I don't know if it's, you know, 10 years, 50 years, a thousand years, who knows, you know, until again, until AI gets essentially better than humans at understanding anything that could happen in the world around it, we think that's going to be important. But as long as the ratio of vehicles to humans is some you know relatively big number, and as long as that number can increase over time as our AI gets smarter and smarter, then we're in a really good place economically. And we don't see any particular urgency to fully remove humans from being available to help when the AI needs it. That makes a lot of sense to me. Now I'm wondering if, let's say I were to take a ride in a Zooks robot taxi. Is there also, for example, a call button? Like, is there something where I can press a button and reach an operator? If, you know, for some reason I'm like, hey, I, I want to maybe get somebody to override something, hopefully never necessary, but is there such a mechanism? There certainly is. In fact, we have, we have several mechanisms. So first of all, above each row of seats, so two of them, there is a, a stop button and it's it's kind of like on a train when you when you pull the thing, right? So it doesn't just immediately slam on the brakes. That could be dangerous. And, you know, you wouldn't want to, for example, get stuck in the middle of train tracks. So it has some semantic intelligence on top of it. But it basically says, hey, you know, as soon as it's safe, I'd, I'd like you to, to stop and pull over and I'd like to get out. So you always have that button. But there's also a, a screen for each passenger. So there's four screens in the vehicle. By the way, we have not optimized these screens for, you know, watching movies or anything like that. We think people are going to want to either be social, relax, or spend time on their, their own devices. Uh, but it is a way of interacting with the vehicles. If you want to, you know, change the temperature, change the music, or, or call up uh, an agent, there's definitely a really easy way to do that. And we'll almost instantly get somebody on the phone with you. Very cool. Now, one of the big things that happened in the history of Zooks is, of course, you founded in 2014, but then... In 2020, Zooks was acquired by Amazon. What did that mean for you and how has that changed or maybe not changed what you are doing at Zooks? Well, 2020 was really hard for us. Um, 2020 was also really hard for a lot of people and a lot of companies. So we weren't unique in that regard. But, you know, when we started this company in 2014, we had a you know, pretty good sense is going to be really hard really expensive. It's going to take a long time. Actually, our very first guess in 2014 of when we'd have a product out was 2021. So, you know, we didn't, but yeah, like, okay, seven years. Obviously that did not come into pass because it's after 2021 and our product still isn't out yet, but I don't think we were, you know, wildly off. I mean, we did reveal our vehicle publicly at the end of 2020. It's been now testing on open public roads for several months uh, and we're not too far away from starting early commercial deployments. So, but you know, it was definitely a harder problem than we than we imagined it would be. And I think that's been the case for most people in this industry who, you know, been it for a decade plus. In any case, you know, as 2020 was approaching, we were in the middle of raising a Series C and or attempting to raise a Series C. Uh, and that was not easy even before COVID because, you know, it would, like when you're asking for hundreds of millions or maybe even, you know, billion plus dollars and you're pre-revenue, you know, that just, that just doesn't happen very often. Not to mention that, you know, in early 2020, there was quite a bit of skepticism about the industry, you know, because a lot of, you know, missed timelines and so on. And, you know, I don't, I don't, we certainly weren't the worst offenders in that regard, but we, we were not perfect either by any means. And so it's just getting really challenging to put that round together, but it seemed like, you know, we 
probably had a path to get something decent together. Uh, and then COVID hit and then, you know, that kind of all just evaporated and we needed to figure out what to do. So we, we said, look, we need to explore all our options. Obviously we, you know, we'd like to be able to complete the mission, but we also have employees and shareholders to worry about. And so, you know, let's, let's see what's out there. Can we, can we raise a round, you know, do we sell the company? What's the, what's the best thing to do here? And so, um, it was a really difficult, you know, few months. And there were times where it genuinely seemed like, you know, we might not have an outcome that, that got investors their money back or, you know, that let the company survive. And we got pretty close to running out of money. It was very, 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 very scary. Fortunately, we, uh, we, you know, ended up kind of putting things together. Things started to recover a little bit in, you know, April and May in terms of, you know, the economy and what people are thinking about things. And so it, it turned out that our best option by quite some margin actually was to sell the company to Amazon. And, uh, you know, it wasn't in anything that we had been imagining several months earlier, but Amazon, to their credit, recognized the opportunity here of what we were working on, not just from a narrow technology perspective, but actually in terms of, hey, you know, the market opportunity to autonomously move people around cities and robo taxis is huge. What a great business to be in. It wasn't something they had been, you know, in before. Um, they just decided to, to invest in that uh, by acquiring Zooks and then funding Zooks going into the future. So certainly relief for you know, our investors and for our employees uh, and for the mission to be able to continue doing what we you know, set out to do in 2014 and you know, avoid a potentially really you know, disappointing end to the company. It's been a few years now and we're really happy because you know, we uh, have been able to make a ton of progress. We've been able to get the you know, financial resources that was getting, you know, challenging, if not impossible to secure as a fully, you know, private independent company. And, you know, especially looking back now with the benefit of hindsight, I think if we had tried to do a SPAC, you know, go public, uh, I don't think that would have worked out at all. I mean, we might've felt, you know, rich on paper for a few seconds, but it, it was clear that the amount of capital we need, was just not something you can raise, you know, in the public markets. And I think, you know, had we done that, we, we might not even exist anymore. Or we'd be close to not existing. And certainly there wasn't any way to raise enough money privately to, to continue either in any sort of viable way. So this was, you know, probably about the only path that would have allowed us to, to survive. And so we're very grateful that, you know, Amazon recognized the opportunity here. And we, uh, we've also, you know, really stayed separate. We've kept a separate, you know, we're a legally separate entity. We have our own titles and levels and compensation, and we even have our own uh, equity, which is, which is pretty cool. So, you know, it really feels like a different company, but being connected to Amazon, having them back us. And then, you know, over time, there'll be more opportunities for us to collaborate with other parts of Amazon, but we sort of mutually agreed to take the approach of like, let's kind of leave Zooks alone and just make sure that they, you know, stay focused on getting that robo taxi out. So that's what we've been doing. And, you know, by all accounts, it's been going reasonably well. Obviously, there's still a ton to do, but we're super proud of the progress that we've made over the last few years in terms of getting the vehicle out there. And, you know, we certainly have our work cut out for us, but very grateful to, to have Amazon support here. And, uh, you know, hard to imagine very many other ways that this could have actually worked. What's interesting is that, of course, you wouldn't have had just to raise one more round because self-driving is a long haul thing. You would have had to raise probably two, three, maybe four more exactly. rounds. And we're, I mean, I'm definitely seeing in the market right now, you're probably seeing the same thing that there are self-driving car companies that are seemingly, you know, having a hard time continuing to raise as they are on this path. So it's, I think it's a very challenging time right now for the self-driving car companies. I hope I'm wrong. I hope, you know, they all raise and some of them definitely raise successfully, but it's not becoming any easier to find those investors. Now, when I see Amazon vehicles, I see something very different. I see essentially a Mercedes Sprinter van pulling up and in our driveway, somebody jumps out, delivers a package. It seems like there you, you kind of almost need the person or, or do you also envision a future where somehow that becomes autonomous? Is that something Zooks is, is thinking about? You know, eventually almost anything can become autonomous. It's not something we're thinking about right now. I'll be honest, the first time we started talking to Amazon, that's, you know, that's where my mind went, oh, it's Amazon. They, they move a lot of packages. They probably are interested in us to help them move packages autonomously. It's not that they're not interested in that. And it's not that we've had no conversations with them about that. We do talk to them about that from time to time. It would be kind of weird if we never talked about it. But 
it genuinely is not something we're working on. And and you sort of alluded to one of the, the reasons why is like, you really do need a person to, you know, load up the vehicle and you need a person to take the packages out of the vehicle and take them to the customer. And, you know, who knows, maybe someday we'll have a robot, you know, that, that can, like a humanoid or some type of a robot that can do that too. It's really not anything we're worrying about. And the other thing is, you know, what we're doing already is really hard. And so there are a lot of other cool things we could do. We could worry about package delivery. We could think about trucking. Like there's, there's, Tons of cool things we could do, but we're super laser focused on robo taxis for moving people around cities. You know, like we talked about earlier, that's not an easy, not an easy thing to figure out. So we we have decided very consciously to say no to all other things for now. But you know, we don't close the door off to potential additional applications over time. We don't know exactly which ones we will decide to embark on and which ones we won't. But we're not just being cagey. We genuinely are not working on anything else right now. Taking a step back in time, really, before Zooks, before Zooks, you were at Stanford working on Stanford self-driving car project, which was the start of the new era of self-driving. Of course, there had been attempts in the past, but there was the big DARPA challenges that had universities compete with their self-driving efforts. Of course, you were you know, one of the big, big um, leads of the Stanford effort. How did you decide at the time that you wanted to work on that project? And what was the experience like to be in those challenges? And from there, and I know it's a long question, you can break it down for sure. Um, I know that your PhD advisor, Sebastian Thrun, I mean, he started the Google self-driving effort out of those academic efforts, but you decided to start your own, which is another decision you made there. So a lot of decisions you made to end up where you are today. I'm really curious what that trajectory was like for you. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. I mean, it certainly wasn't all premeditated. I grew up in Silicon Valley and I've never been one of those people who's like, oh, I'm going to grow up and, you know, start a company or be a CEO. Like, I wanted to do, you know, interesting things that, that mattered. And as it turned out, I thought that, you know, starting this company would, would be the best thing to do. But I didn't, you know, go into it thinking that. In fact, I didn't, you know, I didn't know when I joined Sanford that I was going to get to work on self-driving cars. What I did know when I when I visited the uh, the several PhD programs that I was fortunate enough to get into for computer science, I really did feel like Stanford was working on problems that mattered to a much higher extent than other universities. So, you know, other schools had just as smart professors, right? And just as smart students. But there is something special about Stanford, which is like, you know, people really wanted to work on things that if they worked, would make a difference in the world. And I didn't get that sense nearly to that extent at other places. And that was exciting to me because, you know, I, I love hard intellectual problems and I love coming up with algorithms, but I also want them to do useful things. And for me, at least personally, if they don't do useful things, like, you know, it might be intellectually interesting, but like, who really cares? So for me, I, you know, I, I visited Stanford and I saw Sebastian, I saw Andrew Ring, I saw Daphne Caller, and I was like, you know, I would love to work with, with any of them. Like, that would be amazing. They're all working on so many cool projects. Like, what a treat. So I ended up, you know, picking Stanford really, you know, for those, for those three professors and just how fun it seemed to get to work with any of them. And as timing would have it, I, I got to Stanford in 2005, about one week before the 2005 DARPA Grand Challenge. So obviously I had truly nothing to do with either of the Grand Challenges in 2004, 2005. I'd never even met any of these people other than briefly Sebastian during Admit Weekend. But I was intently following, you know, both of the, the races. And, you know, after the 2005 grand challenge it you know you started thinking hey you know, there's some there's something to this right and then you sort of use your imagination like well at some point you know cars in cities should be able to drive themselves too and so when sebastian and the team came back I, I congratulated them and i was like hey it'd be super cool to get to work with you all and basically sebastian told me if i took his probabilistic robotics class and did well then he would consider you know having me as a student so i took his class i loved it it was amazing apparently i did well enough and uh he said okay you can you know do some stuff with us and so i started working on early you know mapping and localization using lidars funny enough he never officially told me i was his student he randomly introduced me to somebody as the student several months later and i was like oh i guess i'm your student he's like what do you mean i was like well you just you just called me your student he's like yeah you're my student i was like oh you've You've never told me that. And he's like sort of rolled his eyes. And I was like, well, okay. So that's how I came to be Sebastian's student. And, um, you know, basically it was an incredible time getting to work on the urban challenge 
you know, we were such a small team. There were like, you know, four or five of us who actually wrote all the code for this vehicle, which is so funny to think about now. I mean, Zooks is, you know, well over 2000 people already. And a good chunk of those are software engineers. And you know, here were this tiny team. It wasn't that we were so great. It's just, you know, very scrappy, getting something to work, you know, in a sort of, you know, demo setting. Urban challenge was so much easier than real life. There were no pedestrians or no traffic lights or no bicyclists. But, you know, at the time it was like, holy crap, you have to deal with other moving cars and, you know, intersections and merging. So it was a, it was a treat to get to work on that. And, uh, you know, I certainly thought about going to Google, you know, when I finished my PhD, I, uh, I decided not to, cause I don't know, I, I kind of visited Google X and I was like, okay, this is cool. Like a lot of really smart people and, you know, delicious free food and pays well. And I was like, all those things sound really nice, but I kind of like, I went for a tour and I, I kind of came away with a sense that like, maybe they aren't super focused on like what the product's going to be, you know, what the business model is going to be. That's okay. Like I'd still have a fun time, but I just, I get a lot more motivated when I kind of know like, what is that? end state and, and why am I building this thing? I just didn't feel like I'd have that there. So I stuck around, I did a postdoc, which is a little bit of a weird thing to do because I didn't really think I wanted to be a professor. Like I did think I wanted to go, you know, build something somewhere somehow. So I did a postdoc and, you know, made very little money, but got to keep running our little small team because as you pointed out, Sebastian was busy doing all his things. So I had this tiny little team and we kept, you know, kind of coming up with some basics and building this, you know, not very impressive self-driving car at Stanford, but, you know, hopefully doing some good research. And, you know, it was really early 2014 when I got the email out of the blue from my venture co-founder, Tim. And I was like, hey, I'm Tim from Australia and I have all these ideas about self-driving cars and the future of autonomous mobility. And, you know, I had a lot of free time as a postdoc. Life was pretty good back then. And um, I figured, you know, this guy seems pretty interesting. Of course, I Googled him. He seemed really talented, really creative. So I met up with him and I wasn't really expecting anything to come of it. But, you know, just like, why not meet an interesting person? You know, but but from a very outsider's perspective, he had this insight that, you know, if, if you have this technology that we're building, you could do something way more powerful with it than put it in cars and keep selling the cars to people. You could build what are now called robo-taxis and you can own and operate them as a fleet. It'd be a profoundly better use of resources environmentally and economically, and you could create a much more compelling product for the user. And I just got really, you know, inspired by that. And I was like, you know, nobody's thinking about that out here, but they probably should be. So, you know, we, we spent a few months kind of got to know each other and then decided that this was a somewhat crazy idea, but still worth doing. So that's how we ended up starting this company. How did you raise your first round for that? Because that's always like the, the way to really get started. You need to raise that first round. Otherwise, you're not off to the races. Yeah. So, you know, what was interesting was raising money in the beginning wasn't too hard for us. And I think that one of the things that really helped was um, we had this really cool and fairly rare combination of a beautiful vision, you know, incredible design, something that was kind of viscerally compelling and almost like, you know, emotionally meaningful in terms of everything that, you know, Tim was bringing to the table, you know, not just the design, but, you know, the architecture, the whole idea behind this vehicle, what it could be. I mean, he really gets, you know, the credit for, for that idea. And then, you know, what I brought was I'd been working on self-driving car algorithms for, you know, almost a decade at that point. And so, you know, some of my team from Stanford came with us to Zooks. Uh, we actually managed to get an exclusive license from Stanford's Office of Technology licensing for all the code that my team and I had had written there. And so that helped us get started really quickly. So we were able to make, you know, pretty compelling demos and share a pretty compelling vision for the future. That's, I think, somewhat rare for VCs to see all of that so early on in a company. And so, you know, raising raising seed rounds wasn't actually too hard for us. I, I don't know that, you know, at the seed round stage, people were really contemplating, okay, how expensive is this going to be to really build it and scale it? It was just more like, hey, there's there's something to this. It's a pretty interesting founding team, you know, not just Tim and, and me, but, you know, we had some really brilliant people from Stanford, from people Tim had met, you know, kind of looking all over the world. So we had a pretty special early team and kind of just used, you know, early money we raised to um, kind of get started. By the way, a lot of, I mean, I don't want to make it sound truly easy. I mean, most investors we talk to are like, this is nuts. I want to be very clear about that. Like, and very good, reasonable people are just like, hey, you know, what the hell are you doing? Why are you, you know, why build hardware that's totally dumb? You know, this sounds impossible. All, we heard the, all the things, but, you know, when you're raising money, you can be rejected by 
most people and you just need some people to think that there's something to this. So it ended up not being too hard to raise some seed rounds. Things got a lot harder when we tried to raise, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, as you would imagine. So we ended up spending a lot of our time fundraising and it was very, very challenging later on in the company. But the early days weren't too hard. I always really enjoy hearing the early day stories, Jesse. Thanks for sharing that. Now, I want to ask you one last question. Obviously, you keep very, very busy at work, but are there some things you do to get away from things and relax sometimes? Not as much as I should, but yes. I got really interested in photography in college and grad school, and it's something I love. I, I don't have as much time to do it as I as I used to, but I love taking photos. And honestly, even now with the latest you know, iPhone with 48 megapixel pro raw mode, like you can take some pretty seriously good photos on an iPhone, which is totally mind-blowing. Like, didn't, didn't see that coming uh, a decade ago. I didn't think we'd ever have, you know, sensors that big with, you know, taking that many images and stacking them. And my friend Varun and I from Stanford actually wrote the first HDR app for cell phones way back in 2009. So I was kind of an, you know, early pioneer of kind of getting computational photography out to people so that they could use it. And that was, that was super fun. I learned a lot from that experience. So I love taking pictures, but I, I should probably do more of it than I do. Uh, I like to play tennis. I'm not particularly good, but I'm not horrible. It's a really fun sport. And probably my favorite thing to do to relax is actually to play piano. So I play mostly classical music. And for whatever reason, I enjoy improvising and composing classical music as well. So that's very relaxing. It's very cathartic. And, you know, I don't, I don't spend a ton of time doing it, but I try most days, even if it's just five or 10 minutes, to just find some time to play piano and not worry about anything. That sounds nice. Well, Jesse... Thanks so much for making the time. This was a wonderful conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. This was a real treat.